For those of you who don't know me, my name is DJ, and I am a pastor here at Trinity. Um, that's a tricky phrase to say, I'm a pastor, because the question, am I a pastor, um, has kind of been one of the defining struggles of my life and ministry. Um, am I a pastor, or am I a technical publication supervisor who happens to dabble in preaching from time to time, just like my coworkers dabble in camping or hunting or whatever the case may be? Um, because most of my life, most of my ministry has been bivocational, and so when uh, Dustin had to drop off the program and I stepped in to take his place, I couldn't think of anything more fitting to talk to you about tonight um, than that question of what is bivocational ministry? And really, that's a question about what is ministry? What does it mean to pastor? What does it mean to be a pastor? Is it a profession? And I think that's what our culture thinks. That's what our culture has in their head, that preacher is something that you do just like doctor, lawyer, firefighter, etc. cetera. Uh, and so it, it's always interesting whenever you meet somebody and, and they ask me, you know, so what do you do for a living? And I never know what to say. Um, because if I say I'm a pastor, then they're going to ask about and they're going to have a particular picture in their mind. Um, and it's probably not going to reflect what my life really looks like. But if I say I'm a technical publication supervisor, uh, that's really not what I do. Well, it is what I do, but it's, it's not what I'm passionate about. It's not the most important thing that I do for a living. Uh, so, so am I a pastor? How do I answer that question? That question is one that I've spent the better part, as Dave said, of 12 years exploring and figuring out. It's an issue of identity. Uh, it's an issue of calling. And it's an issue of how to be faithful when ministry doesn't look like the roadmap that you laid out when you started Bible college. Uh, after graduating from Boyce, I worked for two years as Minister of Youth and Administration at a church in South Louisville. I basically made a full-time job there out of, out of two part-time jobs, but I was in full-time ministry. That was my job. Every morning, my 9 to 5 was get up from the parsonage, walk across the street, and, or across the parking lot, as it were, and, and spend my days at the church working with the youth, uh, planning, writing sermons, taking care of stuff around the church. Um, but after two years of making a, a full-time job out of two part-time jobs, my wife and I decided we were ready to start a family. And health insurance comes in real handy for that. And so we decided that I would resign the administration half of my job, continue on as a youth pastor, and look for a full-time job that could put us in a little bit better footing to, to have a family. And so began my journey as a bivocational pastor. And so for the last 12 years, there have been a lot of different chapters in that journey. For some of that time, I've been paid for the pastoral part of my work, such as right now at Trinity, such as in those early days still doing the youth pastor gig. It's still been technically my job. For other times, I've been a lay elder where I did basically the exact same sort of work, but we feel compelled to call it something different because pastor implies profession, right? Even though Elder, pastor, it's the same term biblically. I'm doing the same stuff. And along a significant chunk of that journey, I have been trying to get back into a full-time gig, right? Because that's, that's the plan. That's what you want, right? I, I don't want to go to UPS Monday through Friday, just like you probably don't want to go to your job Monday through Friday half the time. There, and there's a lot of different reasons that I've wanted to get into a full-time gig. Some of them good, some of them not so good. And one of them that's not so good is the cultural and personal assumption that you're not really pastoring unless you're a pastor. I think that's how we see it largely in the church today. That's certainly how I saw it, how I wrestled with what am I if I'm not a pastor? What does my identity look like? What do I stake myself on? Well, I'm here this evening to encourage you, if you're in bivocational ministry, if you're thinking about going that path, if you don't know what your path looks like, I'm here to tell you tonight that we've got it backwards as a church. The biblical paradigm isn't that you work at pastoring because you're a pastor, it's that you're a pastor because you work at pastoring. Benny talked a lot tonight about calling, about a burden, something God lays on us. We must discharge this ministry. And that can take a lot of different shapes, a lot of different forms, and pay a lot of different paychecks, from full-time to none at all. Bivocational pastoring often looks and feels like plan B, right? 
Nobody sets out to say, what I won't say nobody, but very few people. I didn't go to school with anybody who said, I'm going to graduate and go be a bivocational pastor, right? Bivocational is what you do when you can't get a full-time gig. It's the backup plan. But that kind of view that identifies pastoral ministry with a profession doesn't paint a complete picture of what pastoral ministry is, doesn't paint an accurate picture of what pastoral ministry is, and it doesn't do justice to the Bible. And it doesn't do justice to the life of the Apostle Paul, who we're going to look at tonight in 1 Corinthians. So if you've got a copy of the Bible tonight, and I hope you do, take it out, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 15 through 23 this evening, and we're going to come along on a journey in the life of Paul. And we're going to see that bivocational ministry can be more than just plan B. It can be an, an unique an advantageous path to pursue for pastoral ministry. It can be another tool in your toolbox. And if it's where God has planted you, whether for this season or for a lifetime of ministry, it can be a place for you to be a faithful servant, a faithful pastor, a faithful minister of God's word. So join me, 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to read verses 15 through 23 together, and then we will dive in and talk more about it. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says... But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That's God's word before us tonight. Pray with me and we'll dive into it together. Our God and Father, we come to you tonight asking that we that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. By your spirit, by your grace, into the praise of your glorious name. We ask these things in Christ's name, our Redeemer. Amen. So, bivocational ministry. Paul is a bivocational minister here. This is what he's talking about. You hear Paul, oftentimes we talk about tent making, right? That's, that's the, the synonymous term for bivocational ministry, tent making, because of Paul, because Paul was a tent maker. We're going to dig into that here just a little bit tonight. But it's important to note as we start here in verse 15 and we trace Paul's argument about the way that he views ministry, his philosophy of ministry and support and financing, it's important to note we're picking him up in mid-argument here. We're jumping right into the middle of his discourse. And so we need to set the context before we can go any deeper tonight. So what exactly is Paul talking about here? So he says in verse 15, I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. What are the rights that he's talking about? Well, if we would back up, read the first 14 verses of chapter 9, we would see he's talking about the right to make a living from the gospel, the right to be supported from his ministry. He argues from the Old Testament law. He argues from practical real-world experience. Nobody serves as a soldier at his own expense, right? When you go to work and you punch the time clock, you're not doing it just because you feel good about it and want to help society. You expect to be compensated. Paul says, am I the only one that doesn't have this right? 
And so he argues not only that he has this right as a minister, but that this is a good thing, that it pleases God when churches support the men who feed them the word. But he says here in verse 15, but I've, I've made no use of these rights. And it's important that he points out, I'm not about to make this argument so you'll feel sorry for me and start paying me now, right? I'm not writing these things to secure any such provision. In fact, I'd rather die than you start paying me. I'd rather die than you deprive me of my boasting in the gospel. So Paul says, I have the right to be a full-time pastor. I have the right to be compensated for the work that I'm doing. But I'm intentionally laying that aside. I'm intentionally making no use of that right, and and I'm not saying that I want to start today because I don't want anyone to deprive me of my boasting. What kind of boasting is he talking about here? We're going to get into that a little bit more momentarily, but I want to put an important caveat in place right here from the start because we could get the impression, perhaps, that Paul is holding up bivocational ministry as this more noble ideal, right? That if you really want to go big league, that you'll, you'll leave the paycheck and you'll be like Paul and roll up your sleeves and start making tents. Because I don't want anybody to deprive me of my boasting. I don't want to just say I'm doing it for the paycheck. Is that what Paul's doing? Is he holding up bivocational ministry as this more noble ideal? As much as I would like to say so as a bivocational pastor, no. No, he's not. If that were the case, he wouldn't have just spent the previous 14 verses arguing from the Old Testament law and common experience about the goodness of ministers making their lives from the gospel they preach. Bivocational ministry isn't better, it's different. It isn't better, it's different. That's the first thing I want to lay out there tonight. I'm going to say a lot this evening about why bivocational ministry should be elevated above the second-tier status we've assigned to it in our culture. I'm going to talk about some benefits and advantages it bestows to the preacher and to his preaching. But it needs to be pointed out from the start that it doesn't make bivocational ministry inherently better. It's not better, it's different. Which is the better tool? A hammer or a screwdriver? You would say it depends on what I'm supposed to do with it, right? It depends on whether I've got a nail or a screw to deal with. They're different tools. Each bestows different advantages. And I would bet that everybody in this room has one of each in their house, probably. Which one is more fitting will depend largely on the situation that you find yourself in. And I think it's the same way with ministry. So I'm not here to shame you if you draw a paycheck for preaching the gospel. I'm not here to shame you if you draw a really good paycheck for preaching the gospel. Alistair Begg put it, uh, the best I've ever heard it one, one day when he said, They can never pay us enough, and they can never pay us too little, right? This is what we do. We preach the word. I'm here tonight to tell you, as Paul is telling the Corinthians here, that a good minister needs more than one ministry model in his toolbox, right? If you're setting out to say, I want to pursue God's calling to Christian ministry, don't get so narrow a view in your mind that you pursue a call that's not where God ultimately sends you. Bivocational ministry isn't better, it's different. All right, so that's the caveat. That's what we've got to lay out before we dig deeper. Now, with that out of the way, what is Paul doing here? What is he on about? Well, again, first, let's step back and let's look at exactly what's going on here in Corinth. This letter to the Corinthian church. How did did we get here? How did we get to this point where Paul is writing this letter to these people about this topic? Well, for that, we have to go to the book of Acts, right? We go to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, where Luke records this story for us. He says, after this, Paul left Athens, and the this is Paul's famous discourse on Mars Hill, right, where he talks with the philosophers in Athens and presents the gospel to them there. After this, he leaves Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul arrives in Corinth, and like he does most everywhere he goes, he sets about the work of starting to plant a church. 
he shares the gospel. He preaches the gospel. And he meets these two folks, this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and kind of uses their friendship, their relationship as a home base to start to evangelize, first, the Jewish community, right? That's kind of Paul's pattern in his early ministry as he goes to the synagogues and he starts to reason with them from the scriptures, from the law, in which Paul was very well versed, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, that he's lived, he's died, he's rose again to save his people, Jew and Gentile alike, from their sins. And so throughout these efforts, even as he starts to to reach out to the Gentile community as well, he's not drawing any support from the people that he's ministering to. He's not being paid. He's not Paul, senior pastor, First Church of Corinth, with a nice corner office and a window and a book stipend. Oh, book stipend. That'd be the day. But no, he's supporting himself by tent making. The shared trade that brought him together with Aquila and Priscilla in the first place, right? He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He was of the same trade. So, note also, this is not the first time that Paul has done this. How do we know that? Because we know he was a tent maker by trade, which implies that he has previously made tents. He has done this before because he found these people, they're of the same trade, it's cause for them to come together, and that begins to be how he operates in Corinth. So one of the first questions that we have to ask ourselves as we look at bivocational ministry, is that that an option for me, is that a possibility for me, is do you have a trade? Or at least the skills to find one. So when I was in high school, I was really into science. Like, I wanted to be, I wanted to get into meteorology. I was taking science classes, advanced math classes to get ready for college because this is what I want to go and do. Then my junior year of high school, I started feeling this call to ministry, this call to go and preach. So I went into the guidance counselor's office and I dumped all the advanced math classes that I have and said, what's the easiest thing I can take to graduate? Because I don't need that now, right? I don't need these math skills. I'm going to go and preach. Matt Chandler, uh, in one of his messages at Together for the Gospel one year, Uh, made a joke that's always stuck with me. He said, I have a bachelor's degree in Bible, which means if I'm not preaching, I'm unemployed. And I can laugh at that joke because I have a bachelor's degree in Bible and I work for an airline because God has a sense of humor. Um, But do you have skills? Do you have a trade, right? Don't be so focused into thinking you have your career path planned out so perfectly that if God detours you, you're sunk, right? Just a thought. Paul arrives knowing how to make a tent. And so he makes tents and he supports himself in ministry. So this is the situation that he's in when he writes what we're reading in our text tonight in 1 Corinthians 9. He's preaching. He's reaching out to the Jews, to the Gentiles. He's building this church. Now he's gone and moved on and he's written this letter back to the church he founded at Corinth. And they have some disdain for him. They, they, they get allured with some of these super apostles here, and especially in 2 Corinthians that come along, these guys that are, they're big league. They're known, right? They don't go to the unknown conference. They, they go and they run the other conferences. And so the people are like, you know, Paul, he's, he's nothing. He's whatever. And so Paul is defending himself in his ministry here, and he's talking about the fact that I have a right, just like everybody else, to make my living for the gospel. The reason I don't is because I'm doing this for a purpose. And I don't want anybody to deprive me of my boasting. And he says he can't boast about preaching the gospel. So that's the question. What's he boasting about? What is this boast? He says, I can't boast about, boast about preaching because I have to, right? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Necessity is laid upon me, like Benny said. It's a burden that he felt. I, I can't walk away from this. And so I can't tell you how awesome I am for doing something that I can't stop doing out of a divine compulsion. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Reminds me of the old-time preacher Billy Bray. If you've never read anything about Billy Bray, you should go look him up sometime. He's a lot of fun. He was not culturally refined in the least, but God used him, and he loved him some Jesus. And one of his most famous quotes, as he talked about this necessity to preach, I got to do it all the time. He says, I will preach wherever they put me. If they were to put me in a barrel, I would cry glory out the bunghole. You don't get to say that every day. So Billy Bray, cry glory out the bunghole. <laughs> Paul is compelled like that. He has to preach. Can't help it. So what's his reward? 
right? This necessity is laid on me. I have to do this. I don't have a reward for doing it, but I'm entrusted with a stewardship. So what's my reward? What do I get out of this? My reward, verse 18, is that I may present the gospel free of charge and not make full use of any of my right in the gospel. Bivocational ministry uniquely frees gospel preaching. That's the first advantage that I want to talk about tonight. That's the first thing I want to encourage you. If you are a bivocational pastor, if you're thinking about becoming one, whatever the case may be, bivocational ministry uniquely frees gospel preaching. Corinth was hard ground. Paul preaches to the Jews, and they start opposing him violently. He preaches to the Gentiles, and the Jews still oppose him. Like, we don't want you to preach this stuff to us. We're sons of Abraham. All right, I'll go preach to the Gentiles. You can't preach to the Gentiles. They're not sons of Abraham. Well, what do you want me to do? Paul is facing hard ground. And he founds this church in Corinth. And things actually get up and get rolling. And Paul moves on to do more work somewhere else. And if you've read the letters to the Corinthians before, things don't go well. Right? This isn't the all-star poster child church of all the ones that Paul planted. They are a mess. This is a hard place to do ministry. Throughout history, and even today, people are often suspicious of the gospel because they're suspicious of religion in general. They're suspicious of religious hucksters and charlatans trying to peddle something to make a quick buck. And if we read Paul's writing, we know that this is something that was going on in the culture of the Roman Empire at the time. It's something people were suspicious of. And Paul would have been especially vulnerable to that suspicion. Christianity was not a respectable and well-known religion, right? I mean, we live in a culture where even though we know the foundations are eroding out from under us, the, the Christian ethic, the Christian faith, the Christian God are like this assumed undercurrent to so much of what we experience in society. That's not the case in the life of Paul, in Corinth, in the other places he goes. He is preaching in the pagan Roman Empire. And so Christianity isn't respectable. It's not well-known. It's an unheard-of offshoot, and in the minds of the people, maybe a cult of Judaism. I mean, they go on and on about a guy who the Romans executed, and they say he's alive and he's God. This is your, this is your pitch? People were suspicious. People were reluctant. Corinth was hard ground. And so Paul was intent on removing as many barriers to the gospel as he could, right? The gospel comes with plenty, and some of them ain't going anywhere if we're going to be faithful and preach. And so Paul says, if I can lose a barrier, we're going to get rid of it. And so he rolls up his sleeves, and he gets to work, rather than relying on the kindness and support of his converts. That's my reward. I can present the gospel free of charge, no strings attached. Right? Nobody has to doubt his motives. Nobody has to wonder, is he trying to work an angle on me? He lives among them. He works among them. They see his character. They hear his message. And, and there's no strings attached. This is an advantage for his preaching. I get to present the gospel free of charge. I already know it's free, but these people don't. So if I can go the extra mile to show them the free nature of God's grace, why not? I'll work every day of my life if I have to. And because Paul wasn't reliant on the support that he's getting, he didn't have to be afraid of losing it, right? Paul is able to boldly exhort his people to repent from sin and follow Jesus without having to worry about offending a particularly generous donor. Read 1 Corinthians. He's got some hard stuff to say because there is some mess going on in this church. And when he has to call somebody out, he doesn't have to worry about, gosh, if that person leaves, then I might not get to eat next week. No, he's, he's free. And he's able to, to exhort, to encourage, to do the things that Benny talked about earlier, to be a faithful minister and not worry about some of these peripheral things that can sometimes get intertwined with the ministry. I can present it free of charge, he says. Now, it's true that being paid for pastoring does actually free us up in a, in a lot of ways, right? It frees us to do a lot of work because ministry is work. 
right? If you're going to be faithful at the things that God calls us to be faithful at, you're going to have to work. And when we're paid to do full-time ministry, it gives us more time and energy and effort and emotion to put into what it is that we're doing. But I'm going to tell you tonight, not being paid or being paid little is freeing in different ways. It carries its own advantages with it. So I never fancied myself a church planner, and yet here we are. But really, the whole model of church planning is frankly terrifying to me. Because what do you do in our culture, basically? You raise a bunch of money, which would keep me up at night. And then once you gather a bunch of money, you go and you set up shop, and you start running your church, and you've got, you know, three years, you've got a set amount of time until the money runs out, and you've got to get so big in order to sustain yourself, because you usually start artificially large, because you've got all this money that you saved up, and so now we've got an end date. And now I've got to get 80 people, 100 people, whatever it is, by this date, or we're done. Like... I would have a nervous breakdown. When we planted Trinity, we intentionally set out to be financially self-sufficient from day one. Like we receive a little bit of outside support, but we wanted that to be extra, not something that we plan on to keep going. Now, when you've got a congregation of 15, that's not easy. But myself, Dave, Tom, who was our third elder when we, when we set out and launched, We've all got jobs that take good care of our families, that give us enough margin to be able to do the work of the gospel if we have a team around us. Like all of us said, if it's just me, we're done. I can't do this. But if there's more than one, then my job gives me the ability to do that. It takes care of my family. And so let's, let's see what happens. Let's set up shop. And a year and a half later, we're still at about 15 We've seen some people come. We've seen some people go. There have been days where we've quietly despaired about the lack of growth. But we've never feared. I speak for myself here, and I think I speak for the other guys as well. We've never feared we would have to pack it in and quit. Right? There, there's nothing in terms of financial despair or we're not going to be able to keep the doors open. We've been able to pour the gospel into everybody that God sends our way and invest on building up and equipping whoever God sends in the door. There's freedom in that. There's some things that, that we're not able to do that we could do if we were bigger and, and could work full-time at these kind of things, but there's a tremendous amount of freedom. I would never have church planted any other way. I couldn't. I'd be a basket case. In short, I've seen God do things with his word in people's lives that would not have happened from an earthly perspective. They would not have happened if we weren't willing to give up our rights and minister for very little compensation. Without bivocational ministry, Trinity doesn't exist. The church at Corinth doesn't exist. There is unique opportunity, there is unique freedom that comes from being able to, just as Paul says, preach the gospel free of charge, not make full use of my rights in the gospel. So I ask you tonight, my first question to chew on as you go home from here, as you think tonight, what gospel opportunities might be around you, maybe right in front of you, if you're willing to think outside the box in terms of how you support your ministry and your family? What things have you maybe never considered that might be suddenly available to you? In what ways do you have the opportunity, wherever you're at, whatever your job, whatever your career path, wherever you go, in what ways do you right now have the opportunity to present the gospel free of charge, to cut through people's suspicions, to proclaim Christ without baggage, without fear, and to freely Speak of the free grace that has transformed your life. There are advantages to full-time ministry, but there are also advantages to bivocational ministry. And one of them is that it uniquely frees gospel preaching. But it also provides advantages that go beyond simply the financial. There's more than just the money side and the freedom there that gives bivocational ministry a unique power and a unique ability. In verse 19, Paul goes deeper into the thinking that drives him toward this end. He goes deeper into his philosophy of ministry. 
right here he's kind of talked a little bit about what he's doing and how he's doing it. In verse 19 through 23, we get why he's doing it. What is the engine that drives Paul forward? Simply put, he is willing to do whatever it takes to reach people to the gospel. What's Paul's ministry vision? What's his philosophy of ministry? What's his mission statement? Whatever it takes. He is willing to do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. Right? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And then he goes on to the Jews I became a Jew. To the one under the law I became one under the law. To the one not under the law I became one not under the law. Though he could rightly insist on earning a living from his ministry, he laid that right aside. So also, he could insist on great personal freedom in the way that he lived. The man that's free in Christ, transformed. Christ has come as the fulfillment of the law that he had spent his life studying. And we have freedom in him. And yet, Paul was willing to lay that freedom aside and become a servant to everyone he met. I'm willing to lay it aside. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And this servant's attitude manifested itself not just through his willingness to ply a trade, but through his willingness to enter into the culture of the people that he was trying to reach. We often refer to that, to this idea that we see Paul explaining here as incarnational ministry, right? Incarnational ministry. Why do we call it that? Because it's the same approach that Jesus took in his incarnation. When he came down from heaven, took on humanity, and walked alongside us. God, in redeeming us from sin, entered into our world. He walked a mile in our shoes. He became like us in his humanity in order to save us. He set aside his freedom and became our servant by humbling himself and becoming like us. Philippians chapter 2 is the classic, great, beautiful text when we think about this idea where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did Christ have to do this? Was he not free? Was he not free to wash his hands of this whole dreadful mess called humanity? Did he owe us something? No. But he humbled himself. He took the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. To the people, to the humans, I became as a human in order to win humans. Christ was, he was incarnated. He took on flesh, became like us. It was an integral part of his ministry. We get that from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children, that's us, since the children share in flesh and blood, he being Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see how deep that thread runs in what Jesus came to accomplish. He had to be like us in order to help us, in order to save us. Singer-songwriter Derek Webb put it this way, like the three-in-one. Know that you must become what you want to save. You must become what you want to save. Paul believed in this model. And so he became like a Jew in order to reach Jews. He became like a Gentile in order to reach Gentiles. And we don't see him just saying so here, right? Follow his life and ministry. Read the book of Acts. Read his letters to the churches. Paul was a student of the Old Testament law, 
It's all over the place in his teaching, right? Read the book of Romans and read those first few chapters where he starts arguing from God's dealings with Abraham, from God's dealings with his covenant people and the law and how these things point us to Christ. Paul knew his Bible inside and out. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews. But he was also able to walk into the public square in Athens and use an inscription on a pagan altar as a launch pad for talking about Jesus. Because they don't know the law. They don't know about Abraham. But they need to know about Jesus. And so Paul enters into their world, into their culture, into their way of thinking. And he encapsulates this whole philosophy of incarnational ministry into one famous statement, verses 23 and 24, where he declares, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. All things to all people. Famous statement. We've heard that. That is what incarnational ministry is. That's this philosophy, this this path that Paul is following. Now, it's easy to be skeptical of incarnational ministry, right? Because a lot of dumb things have been done in the name of incarnational ministry. You might have heard incarnational ministry used as a thinly veiled excuse for the youth pastor to get a tattoo, right? I got to be like the kids I'm ministering to, so that's why I need the tattoo. It's like just like Jesus. Yeah, it's just like Jesus. And if you have tattoos, that's fine, but... Let's, let's not say it's for that reason. Much is done in the name of being an incarnational that's a lot more about me wanting to fit in with the cool kids than it is about the gospel. Right? That's a temptation. Benny talked about it. We're going to be tempted to want to be popular. If I think to be incarnational, to be like my people, to reach this culture, I need to do X. If X is going to make me look more cool in the eyes of the culture, doesn't mean that's not what I'm supposed to do, but I should probably think about it. I should probably examine my motives. I should probably examine my heart. I think it's kind of funny. Nobody ever talks about buying a beat-up pickup truck, an oversized belt buckle, and getting an NRA membership as being incarnational. But in some places, that's really what you want to do if you want to reach the culture. But we always want to do the cool crowd stuff, right? It's easy to be skeptical of this this notion of incarnational ministry. As much as it's been abused, though, here's my point, that doesn't change the fact that it's biblical. That doesn't change the fact that it was intrinsic to the ministry of Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers. And brothers, you have to be made like your brothers if you're going to reach them with the gospel. And it was central to the thinking and the ministry of Paul. So I want to suggest to you this evening, That just as Paul's famous declaration of becoming all things to all men flows contextually from his defense of his tent making, right? That's what he's been talking about, and that flows into this famous text. So bivocational ministry is deeply and uniquely incarnational. And that is an advantage for the gospel's sake. Bivocational ministry is incarnational. I don't know what congregations you serve. I don't know what congregations you might serve one day or whatever ministry context. You might be a missionary. You might go to people. I don't know who God's going to send you to. But I'm pretty confident in this assertion. I'm going to step out on a limb here. The vast majority of the people that you are called to minister to will work for a living. Most of them. Lots. By being in the trenches alongside them, you have a unique opportunity to speak into their lives. Now, we got to be careful here because it could sound like I'm saying that full-time pastors don't work for a living. And if you've ever been one, know one, or have been around one, you know that is not the case, right? Ministry is hard work. If you're working full-time, like Benny said, it, it ain't 40 hours a week. It ain't nine to five. You don't ever check out. I have that conversation with my coworkers at UPS. Because to them, this is my side job, right? I come and preach. You know, that, that's my side gig on the weekends. I say, no, UPS is the side job. When I leave there, I don't really think about that. But I'm never off the clock when it, when it comes to caring for God's people. So I'm not saying for a minute that full-time pastors don't work for a living. Remember our first point. Remember our caveat at the start. Bivocational isn't better. It's just different. It's unique. The work, I I am confident to say this, though. 
The work that a full-time pastor does is different than the work that most people do. I've done full-time ministry, and I've done bivocational ministry. I've done both. Full-time ministry isn't any easier. It's not any less work. But I will say that working in the secular world brings a whole lot of challenges that I simply didn't have to deal with when I was in full-time ministry. It's a different set of challenges. And that different set of challenges is what your people are going to go through every day. It's what they're going to have to deal with. How do I obey and even honor a boss who is a total jerk to me? How do I pursue righteousness in my business dealings when it seems like the only way to get ahead at my company is to cut corners and falsify the records? How do I speak and act in a way that's honoring to the Lord when it seems like every single ounce of my workplace's culture is tainted with sin and rebellion? How do I remain faithful in the midst of all of that? These are the questions that the people in our congregations have to deal with every single day when they get up, when they go to work. When I was at Boyce, we used to talk about the seminary bubble. The seminary bubble. Because you could go to class, and then on Sunday you could go to a really great church with so many awesome people and some of your classmates, and then you could work an on-campus job. And you could go for days, sometimes even weeks, without ever having an actual meaningful interaction with a non-Christian. And just live in utopia seminary land. And it's great. Like, it's a wonderful place to be. There are times when we go and spend time back on campus. You're like, this place is awesome. Everyone's so nice. It's like being at Chick-fil-A all the time. (laughs) But that's not the real world. Because the downside of the seminary bubble is it can breed a real detachment from the people that we're called to minister to, from the reality of what the gospel is and how to apply it to real, live, broken people. I spent most of my college career waiting tables at Logan's Roadhouse, and I'm really thankful that I did. One of the best things I ever did to prepare myself for ministry was wait tables for a living. Number one, it's a job where your pay every day is directly related to how well you can put up with difficult people. It's fantastic ministry practice. But even aside from that, the restaurant world is a tough world. It can be a pretty dark world to live in. I don't know if you've ever worked at a restaurant, but in my experience, uh, if I were going to put it in the words of the great philosopher Obi-Wan Kenobi, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. I I spent a lot of hours every week with a bunch of people who did not give a rip whether I was a premillennialist, amillennialist, or postmillennialist. They didn't even have a category for why they should care. They had categories for how they could run every Friday and Saturday night headlong into everything that the Bible says you're supposed to avoid, right? How can I have such a great time that I won't remember it tomorrow morning, which I never really understood, but each his own, I suppose. They thought I was bizarre, maybe bigoted, maybe a little of both. They were worried about who they were going to hook up with on the weekend, where they were going to go do, what party they were going to attend, what their future might be, how they were going to set the course of their life. They cared nothing about Jesus. It was the furthest thing from their mind. And they reminded me why I was in Bible college in the first place. Because they needed Jesus. They reminded me that I I wasn't there because of the theology discussions that I was having in the dorms when we had the the hot issue of the week and we had to figure out how we could argue it and debate it and all this stuff. And that's helpful, right? Bible college made me a better minister. It prepared me. But that's not the world, right? That's not where we're called to go. To go and live among people like that. Can you... Can you walk with real people? Can you understand their struggles, their fears, their temptations? Do you know who it is you're preaching to? The great Charles Spurgeon once said that some ministers need to be told that they are the same species as their hearers. It is a remarkable fact, but we may as well state it, that bishops, canons, archdeacons, prebendaries, rural deans, rectors, vicars, and even archbishops are only men after all. And God has not railed off a holy corner of the earth to serve as a chancel for them to abide therein by themselves. Do you have dirt under your fingernails, culturally speaking? Do you know your people? Do you know what their life is like 
what their jobs are like, what their families are like? Can you get dirt under your fingernails, culturally speaking, by being in full-time ministry? Sure you can. If you're being faithful, you will. But I'd suggest to you, you have to work a lot harder at it than you do if you're bivocational. you got to be more intentional about making sure that you're entering into the world of the people that you're preaching to, that you're proclaiming. Here's one of my big takeaways for you tonight. If you're in bivocational ministry, both vocations are your ministry. Both vocations are your ministry. You will have the opportunity to be an evangelist, definitely, and in my experience, even a pastor, a shepherd, while you're doing your secular job. Because people are everywhere, and they need Jesus in your church, and they need Jesus at your workplace. The past couple of years at UPS, which has coincided with us planting this church, uh, I have been working on a special project that has had me working closely with a small group of people for an extended period of time, basically for that two-year period. And since this is all really coming together, right as we were gearing up to plant, I'm like, man, this is fantastic. God, send me th- this team, because I've been working in the same office with the same people for like 10 years, and had the gospel conversation with just about everybody at some time or another. So this was like, here's a new group of people you're going to be working with for the next couple of years. And I'm like, God, send me people I can share the gospel with. Send me church planter targets. This is great. And so I I was all excited. I'm praying, God, send me people who are lost, who need to hear the gospel. And you know what he did? He gave me an entire team of professing believers. And not only that, but an entire team of professing believers and the few who were in outright bad church situations who I could be like, you need to leave that church and come over here with us. They all live like three counties away. They're not even good targets to come here if they wanted to. And I was like, God, it seems like there's a better setup we could go with here, right? And he didn't listen. Instead, he's made me almost as much Pastor DJ at UPS as I am at Trinity Church. I have had more spiritual conversations with people at work in the last two years than I probably did for the previous 10 combined. I've had conversations about grown children no longer practicing their parents' faith and how do we deal with that. I've had conversations about honoring the Lord when the local church becomes a place of argument and strife instead of love and grace. I've had conversations about doctrine, church polity, faithful living at my secular job. And in those conversations, and the other experiences I have, just working a job, they make me better at the conversations I have when I'm being a pastor. We got to dump this sacred versus secular divide that we put in our lives, that we put in our minds. God owns it all. And if he calls you to the ministry, and that involves you spending 80% of your time at a job that you might hate, and 20% getting to be a pastor... It's all ministry. It's all opportunity. And you will have a way, you will have an opportunity to speak into the lives of people that a full-time pastor just won't get. It's not better, it's just different. So if God calls you to this different model of ministry, embrace it. And don't spend your time wondering, man, if I just had a full-time gig like that guy... And miss what's right in front of your face. I missed it for years and years and years because I was more wrapped up in my identity than I was in faithfulness to the God who has called me. Right? I went to Bible college to be a pastor. I told everybody that I know that I'm called to the ministry and I want to be a pastor. And now I'm not a pastor. I'm just a guy who works at UPS. Does that make me a failure? No, because my identity should have never been in my title to begin with. My identity, your identity, is in the God who has saved you, in the Savior who has called you out of darkness and into light and life in his Son. And he set you in a place where no one else in this room is, talking to people that no one else in this room knows about a God who all those people need to know, a Christ who all those people need to see, and they're going to see him in you at work, in your preaching, at your home, when you're out after work, 
grabbing something to drink and talking and, and hanging out, whatever the case may be. It's all ministry. It's all your calling. And so don't pretend that just this little piece is the calling and everything else is what you've got to put up with to get to it. And maybe one day, God will give you an opportunity to get into full-time ministry. And if you take it, that's not wrong. But don't think that, that this is like minor league baseball, right? This is what you've got to do. That's the grind you've got to chase to get to what you're really, really dreaming about. If you're dreaming about that, then you're dreaming about the wrong things because your focus isn't on the gospel. You can preach the gospel in a bivocational role, you can preach the gospel in a full-time role, you can preach the gospel if you're just a guy working a job and you have friends and they need Jesus. Be faithful. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all. Secular, sacred, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That's Paul's manifesto. All things to all men, that by all means I should save some. So are you? Are you doing that? If not, could you? What opportunities are right in front of your face that you haven't seen because you're looking 10 years down the road? Once you see those opportunities, and they're there, and God will show them to you, will you? Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful to grow where he plants you? Alistair is fond of saying there is no better place to serve the Lord than the place where he sets you down. Grow till he moves you somewhere else. And if he never moves you, grow there faithfully for the rest of your life. Are you pursuing this? Could you pursue this? Will you pursue this? the glory of Christ. Let's pray.